is episode 185 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Cerebral Organoids, with Dr. Jurgen Noblek. Hey, everybody. This is Dr. Daylon James and Dr. Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. If you want links to all the papers discussed in each episode, you should subscribe to our newsletter, and you'll get a summary of each episode, including links to interview and roundup papers delivered straight to your inbox each time a new episode comes out. Subscribe at www.stemcellpodcast.com slash newsletter. Today, we have Dr. Jürgen Noblik from the Institute of Molecular Biotechnology, of the Austrian Academy of Sciences, which is in Vienna. He's on the podcast to talk about his groundbreaking work on cerebral organoids. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news coming right up. But first, what does the future look like for organoid-based cell therapies? Dr. Noblick probably has some thoughts on that. What challenges do organoids face for clinical application? So you can listen to the roundtable discussion from the 2018 Custom Frontiers in Organoid Medicine Symposium, moderated by Dr. James Wells, for answers to these questions and more. Gain insights from regulatory, academic, and industry experts as they discuss the biggest hurdles that are facing the development of organoid-based cell therapies. You can register for the recorded panel discussion at www.stemcell.com slash custom panel. You know, Arun, you're talking about the future of organoids. I'm busy just trying to remember my recent past lately. You know, I'm getting older, pushing past 40. You don't know what it's like as a young man, although you're going to feel it soon with that newborn. Decline, (laughs) my man. I'm talking about decline, cognitive decline in particular. I'm really starting to feel it. Um, And, you know, it's elusive. It's, 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 you would say, the holy grail in medicine if we could kind of put a stop to all the degenerative influences of aging. Wow, wouldn't that be a therapy? Well, I can tell you about cognitive decline. Some of what we do know is that inflammation is a major driver of age-associated cognitive decline. Um, And that's a systemic factor. You know, it's circulating pro-inflammatory factors that do this. Uh, But the underlying mechanisms that uh, initiate and or sustain that inflammatory process and the connection with aging and cognitive decline, it's not very well defined. Um, But we do know that uh, energy metabolism has an important role. Energy metabolism at least has an important role in regulating the activation state of the immune system, okay, Um, in order to, to maintain the high metabolic need of the immune elements because they have a high demand for energy as they, you know, proliferate, turn over and mediate all those immune processes, uh, making all those biosynthetic precursors. Um, And we also know that this lipid messenger, prostaglandin E2, is a major modulator of inflammation uh, in the immune uh, processes, as well as just systemically, we know that uh, levels of prostaglandin E2 increase with aging, and they also increase in the context of neurodegenerative disease, okay? So we know all these things. Um, Based on this, Katrin Andreessen at Stanford, one of your alma maters, Arun, uh, her group hypothesized, and that group includes 
the famous Irv Weissman, of course, he had a, he had a role in this. Um, but uh, Dr. Anderson's group hypothesized, of course, that there was a link there, that the increase in prostaglandin E2 may underlie the development of the age-associated maladaptive inflammation and the downstream cognitive decline, right? Uh, so uh, they looked into it. They had this system where they could specifically knock out prostaglandin signaling um, in myeloid cells. And what they found is that in aging macrophages and microglia here, and that's critical, microglia, which are critical mediators of, uh, you know, neural um, survival and signaling, um, that in aging macrophages and microglia, and microglia are myeloid derivatives, of course, right? Uh, prostaglandin E2 signaling, it causes a sequestration of glucose into glycogen, okay? Essentially inducing this energy deficient state that drives the maladaptive pro-inflammatory response, okay? And here's the kicker, right? So they identified, yeah, great. It's, this is what it does. It's just what we thought with the hypothesis, but this is big here. And this is why it made the news. Um, they showed that in aged mice, if they either knocked out this EP2, which is a receptor for prostaglandin E2, if they knocked it out specifically in myeloid cells, they could rejuvenate the cellular metabolism um, and rejuvenate the systemic, you know, do away with that systemic pro-inflammatory state and get recovery of uh, the cognitive decline. They could reduce the brain inflammation, um, which uh, also was accompanied by um, improved hippocampal synaptic plasticity and spatial memory. Boom. All right. So then they go beyond, you know, because we can't be knocking stuff out. We need that EP2 receptor some places. But if you use a chemical blockade, as they did using this um, C52, they could, which is like brain penetrant, right? So it could cross the blood-brain barrier. They could uh, blockade the PGE2 signaling, prostaglandin E2 signaling, and that was uh, sufficient not only to prevent but to restore cognition in old-ass mice. They could get restoration of <laughs> cognitive decline, Arun. This is insane. I mean, I'm sitting here just dreaming about getting my hands on the C52. You got to find a line for me on that. This is Stanford, buddy. You know people. <laughs> Talk to somebody for me, will you? I'll look into it for you. So we've finally reversed cognitive decline in mice. Fantastic. And I mean, hey, this is a really hot topic when it comes to metabolism at the intersection of aging. We've talked about previously metabolism at the intersection of cancer. The question I have here is maybe an obvious one. I mean, this is this is done in mice. You know, there's this is amazing, but it's it's a model system, right? And the the thing is, mice have such a high and such a fast metabolism, right? Is that I'm sure that's got to be influencing this in some way, right? What if you looked at this in, quote unquote, a higher vertebrate system? Would you see the same thing? That's a great question. I mean, I'd be interested to see what the next step is here. Uh, I guess you've got to move into primates. But again, I, I, as you're alluding to there, the resolution in, in mice due to their, you know, hasten metabolism, it may be clear, you know, the, 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 the result may jump out at you in mice where it may be more subtle in primates, but I'm not even worried about it. I would be taking C52 right now. I'm an early adopter. Okay. I had an iPod when it weighed like six or seven pounds. 
Okay. So get me some C52. I'm ready. You probably had one of these old school Game Boys too that also weighed like six or seven pounds. But but anyways, moving on from that pretty amazing story. And and the other thing is like there's a target, right? There is this, you know, there's this drug, there's this target that you might be able to get your hands on. So that's exciting. And I'm sure they are starting to to move into quote unquote higher vertebrates as well. So moving on to another paper actually that's coming out of Stanford. It's from the lab of Mark Davis. Uh, other authors on this particular paper from Nature Medicine are Calvin Quo and Scott Boyd. First author is Lisa, Lisa Wagar. Title of the paper is Modeling Human Adaptive Immune Responses with Tonsil Organoids. It's 2021. We're starting to run out of organoids to talk about here and organoids to make, right? It seems like we're going to come out with an organoid from every single type of bodily tissue pretty soon. So we're going we're gonna to run out of options. But Tonsil organoids, right? It's something that's nude, that's exciting. Uh, and I really love this paper because it's it's really ingenious when you can use these models, you can use these in vitro systems, these in vitro tonsils, tonsil organoids to study immune response. So mud, most of what we actually know about the adaptive immune system has come from mouse studies using different methods that are difficult or tough, or almost impossible to confirm in humans. And we're looking at vaccine responses in this paper and vaccine responses in mice because of the species species difference are often pretty poor predictors of responses to those same vaccines in humans. So the examples they actually used here in this paper are coronavirus vaccine and the, the flu vaccine. And here they used human tonsils, which are really readily available lymphoid organs, right? We used to get our tonsils pulled all the time. I don't think it actually happens as much anymore, but they use these tonsil organoids to actually develop a an organotypic system that can recapitulate the the germinal center features in an in vitro system. So you can do a bunch of different things. You can uh, look at the production of antigen specific antibodies, somatic hypermutation, affinity maturation, plasma blast differentiation, class switch recombination. All these terms. That don't mean too much to me because I'm not an immunologist, <laughs> but hey, even I can see the application here. So they use the system to actually define the essential cellular components that are needed to produce, like I mentioned, a flu vaccine response. And they also show that it can be used to evaluate the humoral immune responses to different priming antigens, such as the rabies vaccine, and also the adenovirus-based SARS-CoV-2 vaccine that we're all getting these days, hopefully soon, and that we're all talking about. So it's a useful system because you can use it to study the mechanisms that are underlying this adaptive immunity in high throughput and in much greater depth than you previously thought possible. And the really important thing, the really obvious important thing is you can rapidly use this to test vaccine candidates and adjuvants in an entirely human system in vitro. So of course you're gonna do clinical trials when you're testing the efficacy of different vaccines and seeing how different people actually positively respond, respond to a, a vaccine such as the coronavirus vaccine. But what if you could do and then say a clinical trial in a tonsil organoid to actually see how effective that vaccine is going to be. You make these organoids from hundreds of different people, perhaps, and then you can see that graded response, uh, graded immune response to a virus, uh, to the uh, viral vaccine. So it's a, uh, it's a, I think this is really exciting. This is really exciting because you can really see the obvious application here. And it's very important for times like these where, vaccines must be effective 
They have to be effective against multiple different types of viruses. And you need a way to test the efficacy of these vaccines. And perhaps this in vitro system can can do just that. Yeah. You, you In the end, you touched on this screening uh, of vaccines. And that's, you know, very timely. We're hearing now about these variants. And of course, I don't want to make a big deal out of it as everybody is 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 you know, putting out these scary ideas of the vaccine's not going to work or you're going to get these variants that slip through. I think it's a bit alarmist, but it's certainly possible. And it raises a specter of whether or not we're just going to have to have like a, a pretty deep bench of vaccines always in play. And as you're saying this, I'm recognizing that we're kind of taking people out of the equation. It's an amazing system. You could take one tonsil, you know, that gets taken out and make a ton of organoids and then in parallel test however many, let's say, mod RNA-based vaccine candidates you want, right? And you can make these mod RNA-based vaccines pretty much overnight, right? You get just a bunch of oligos to print them, right? So we're, we're getting the scale and the throughput on that end, but what we're lacking is the people, you know, the system uh, that we can test it in. So all the things are coming together at, at a really, in a timely way uh, to coalesce on this new, uh, I guess, medical uh, prophylactic frontier where we just always have vaccines going and we have good answers on which ones are going to be the best candidates to move even into phase one. So it's really exciting, as you said. Yeah. And of course, vaccines these days, especially with the new mRNA-based vaccines, you can develop them pretty quick. I mean, we developed a coronavirus vaccine within months, right? But perhaps a system like this could accelerate that even further. And to take what you're talking about and kind of flip it on its head, instead of taking one tonsil and testing a bunch of different oligos against that, what if you take hundreds of these tonsil organoids from hundreds of different people and test your, uh, you know, your candidates against those? Because that'll give you an idea of the importance of genetic background on say, an immune response, because we know that's absolutely an issue. Certain people respond well to the coronavirus vaccine, other people don't. So if you're interested in looking at the, the genetics of immune response, these could be super uh, valuable too. Organoids. Organoids. We got another one, another one in the stable. Um, we're running out, like you said. Uh, you know, this is the the new tech. And we talked about, you just touched on the mod RNA and these vaccine candidates we can make. This is new tech, you know, not super new as people think. This stuff has been in play for over a decade since Carrico pioneered it. But there's even older tech than that based on the oligos and sequence and RNA interference. This is this idea of the antisense oligos, um, which, you know, is a big thing in the, in the 90s. Um, people are kind of sleeping on that. But uh, it's matured. Uh, and we're talking here about uh, a treatment, a clinical translational report in cell stem cell, which is really showing how close to, to uh, realizing the potential of ASO antisense oligos we are. Um, this is about multiple myeloma, which is the second most common blood cancer in the U.S., uh, more than 30,000 new cases in 2020. And the thing is, unlike many other cancers that are relatively common, uh, the survival of this one's poor. We've made a lot of advances in treatment of most cancers and some of them above 90% survival. Five-year survival for multiple myeloma is only 50%, roughly. Uh, and that's despite a bunch of novel therapies that have been developed, but uh, unfortunately oftentimes result in toxicity, the treatment uh, 
due to off-target effect. Uh, and also, even when the treatment works, the relapse rates are very high. Uh, most of the time, because you get this drug resistance due to the emergence of these kind of cancer stem cell clones that then are like super cancers and that are highly refractory to treatment and ultimately um, lead to the patient's demise. Uh, specifically in multiple myeloma, the pro-inflammatory cytokines, we're talking about inflammation again, Arun. I love the hematopoietic system and inflammation, as you know. Um, in this case, the pro-inflammatory milieu uh, and the interferon response uh, signals that come from the bone marrow microenvironment, they play a really important role in the progression of multiple myeloma. And cumulative evidence to date has suggested that there's a specific role for this uh, gene called uh, interferon response factor four. Okay, that's uh, involved in the pathogenesis, also in the progression as you get to these resistant cancers. It's thought that IRF4 uh, plays a critical role there. Um, so what uh, Leslie Cruz and her group at UCSD La Jolla did in order to, to kind of dig in to this multiple myeloma is they uh, hypothesized, because it hasn't really been deeply explored, that this interfer interferon response factor pathway, specifically number four, uh, plays a specific role in not just the progression of the disease, but specifically in the regeneration of these multiple myeloma progenitors, a so-called kind of cancer stem cell clone. Um, and what they did is they partnered with uh, this company called Ionis, formerly known as ISIS, that has a whole bunch of anti-sense oligocandidates that they've developed. Um, and the Cruise Lab uh, partnered with them to test one of these candidates in a, in a xenograft platform, in a patient-derived xenograft model of multiple myeloma. And what they found is that if you overexpress uh, IRF1, uh, you get expansion of the progenitors. Uh, supporting their hypothesis. But here, in, in therapeutically, when they add the antisense oligo, they show that it impedes tumor formation, it, it, it impedes the spread of the myeloma in these mice. Um, and importantly, it eradicates the progenitors and uh, the malignant cells in the plasma while sparing the healthy and normal hematopoietic stem cells and their derivatives. So this is important to avoid that toxicity. You know, one of the major problems with the existing therapies is that they, the, the, the cure is worse than the disease, um, you know, loosely speaking. Uh, and of course, mechanistically, they drill down to show that uh, on a cellular basis, the IRF4 inhibition disrupts the progression of the cell cycle and it downregulates stem cell and cell adhesion transcript expression, ultimately making these tumor cells sensitive to the other less toxic myeloma drugs. So it's a, it's a big story in that it's kind of like, you know, bread and butter, boilerplate, molecular biology meets xenograft model and genetics. Well, not so much genetics, sorry. But um, it's old it's school style science. Uh, and it takes this kind of anti-sense oligos that people haven't been paying a, a much attention to. I wouldn't say it resuscitates them, but it's a nice, high, highly visible story um, affirming the, the clinical potential of these candidates. And you can imagine that uh, it's already, I think, in phase one when I was looking at the um, IONIS website. But this is uh, really strong evidence to support 
um, the efficacy of this treatment and to move it along in uh, the human trials. Yeah, mRNA tech and anti-mRNA tech, like <laughs> with these ASOs, are you know it's really getting its moment in the sun. Of course, we just like we just talked about in the previous paper, um, mRNAs, you know, they're the foundation for modern coronavirus vaccine, and these antisense algos can be rapidly produced to target a particular gene and the expression of a particular gene that may be causing a disease phenotype. And like you said, this has been around for a while, but it's really, I think, uh, caught on in the last five to 10 years. The other exciting thing about these ASOs, these antisense oligos, is you can make them really quickly. They're cheap, they're easy to make. And so if there is a candidate that you wanna knock down, a disease candidate, you can do that really, really rapidly. Yes, cheap and easy to make, but somehow I'm guessing the treatment will still cost thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. Not surprising mm -hmm. in the modern world of pharma, but you know, I will say not to throw shade on the potential of this, but just as you uh, alluded to or specifically mentioned with reference to the first roundup story that I had, we got to see how this works in you know the real, the context of, of cancer in humans. Um, specifically long-term, you know, uh, you always wonder about these therapies in mice. We're treating cancer on, on a horizon of, you know, months at best, but, uh, you know, we're talking about five year survival. So we got to see if these anti-sense oligos really are, are effective in suppressing the long-term, you know, so that you don't get emergence of these CSC clones that ultimately destroy you. Um, I don't know that we've specifically addressed that, although it looks good. Yeah, we've cured everything in mice, haven't we? We've cured aging, as you just talked about. We've cured all different types of cancers. And speaking of cancer, I'm going to talk about another organoid paper that's a, um, a unique type of organoid and a unique type of tissue organoid. This is cervical organoids. And the title of this paper is Opposing Wind Signals Regulate Cervical squamous columnar, so, oh, I gotta say that again, squamocolumnar, not something I'm used to saying, homeostasis and emergence of metaplasia. This is coming from the lab of Thomas Meyer over there at the Max Planck in uh, Berlin, Germany. So organoids, of course, are used for all different types of research, all different types of cancer research. Um, and now we've got cervical organoids. This is a, a unique part of, obviously, the, the, the body. Uh, not everybody has it. Half of us do. Half of us don't. And it's particularly at risk to develop cancers. Um, and you can create these novel organoid models. Uh, this is a group that's, like as I mentioned, led by uh, Thomas Meyer, but also on the paper are Sandrila Chumduri from Würzburg, Rajendra Gurmuthi from Berlin. And they've, uh, they've established this model system to examine how WINT is actually contributing to the onset of cervical cancer. And they published this in Nature Cell Biology. Now, the important thing is that the cervix actually has two different regions that are covered by different types of epithelial cells. There's these multi-layered squamous and single-layered columnar epithelia that are actually merging at these so-called transition zones. And these are the hot spots for these infection-induced cancer development. And the first thing I thought of when I read this paper was, okay, this could be really useful for looking at HPV, because HPV is thought to be a cause of cervical cancer, right? So an important precancerous condition at these sites is the occurrence of metaplasia, which is a process where the non-resident epithelium 
replaces the resident epithelium. Okay, it's like a turnover-based process. And these folks have shown the origin of these metaplastic cells and how they're actually regulated. So they created a an atlas. We've talked about these, these atlas papers almost every episode, these single-cell atlas of the uterine cervix. And they discovered that there's these stratified and columnar epithelia at the cervical transition zone that are actually arising from different types of stem cells. And it's the regeneration of these two epithelial lineages and their overall homeostasis that's controlled by Wnt, something we also talk about a lot. We have these common themes on this podcast, if you haven't figured it out by now. So it's a it's a very useful finding and it's a very useful model system. Again, primary cervical organoids were used here uh, because you can use it to uh, look at uh, cancer-causing viruses like HPV and also potentially bacterial infections. So you can understand how the human papillomavirus together with perhaps a bacterial infection can play a role in transforming these cervical epithelial cells to malignancy. And the critical insights could actually help maybe develop diagnostics down the road to actually detect these different types of tumors and uh, lead to new therapies. So again, it's it's kind of falling in line with the earlier Roundup story that I talked about with the tonsil organoids. It's an ex vivo system that can you that you can really powerfully use to study uh, an infection, uh, HPV infection. In this example, in the previous example, you're looking at say uh, coronavirus vaccine, but it's something that's highly scalable highly reproducible with these organoids. Well, at least you're, you're, that's what you're going for. And uh, you can you can use it to, to examine the biology of a tissue type that we don't talk about a whole lot here on the show, the, the cervix. It's almost like we planned it this episode, Arun. I'm talking to myeloid almost. stories. You're talking to organoid stories. They're both primary. And I think that's what I want to comment on here. This is two primary organoid stories. And when I look at the figures, I'm really struck by how far we've come, but also how far we have to go with pluripotent stem cell-derived organoids, right? You look at these single-cell maps and you recognize that in order to make uh, organ and organoid, there's, you know, a bunch of different cell types that are all coming together and they're not all arising from the same germ layer. I mean, you just look at one of these plots alone and you can see that there's like endocervix, ectocervix, there's the the metaplasia cells, there's immune cells in there, neural cells, parasites, smooth muscles, stromal cells. So yeah, we've got some ways to go before we're making tonsil organoids or cervical organoids from pluripotent stem cells. But nevertheless, I think the amazing thing is that just using these primary organoids, there's so much that you can do. Um, and I, I don't think that we really recognized the potential. Or I would say we're so impressed with the fact that we're able to make things that look kind of like uh, organs or, or uh, I guess, spheroids that are made up of the, the, the cells present in certain organs. But these primary organoids are kind of like mini organs. They're, I think they're mm -hmm. a bit more impressive in terms of their function and application. Yeah, and I the limitation, of course, is the the reproducibility is something I mentioned uh, just for a second there. I do have a thought question for you. Say you're able to make either cervical organoids, primary cervical, cervical organoids, or IPS-derived cervical organoids, or, you know, to take the example of the story we covered, a, you know, a couple papers ago, tonsils. What if you could make these IPS-derived tonsil organoids versus utilizing primary tonsil organoids hmm. is there like and say they're 
I don't want to say interchangeable, but the both options are on the table. Hmm. What approach would you use? You know, is like for me, I'm an IPS biologist, so I'm inclined to use that. But I can definitely see the advantage of using these primary organoids as well. Well, I would love to be able to even consider the choice, but you know, I, I think the the my answer there, which is is going to obviate the question a bit, is that I would ask the question of how are the IPS derived organoids um, different from the primary? Presumably, the primary have the whole education, the experience of that those cells and that organ. Um, in their environment, whereas the IPS would be more a reflection of the predisposition or kind of like epigenetic or whatever, all the, the things that we've been discovering with IPS. So I, I don't know what's the better system, but I, I can imagine that comparison of the two would allow you to, uh, you know, answer some really exciting um, and important questions. And the bottom line is, is that we're going to make organoids one way or the other, my friend. Um, and so that brings me to my message from stem cells. If you use organoids, or are interested in using organoids, have a look at the Stem Diff Cerebral Organoid Differentiation Kit by Stem Cell Technologies. You can use it to take your own cerebral organoids to the next research frontier. This 3D culture kit reliably mimics early brain development so you can focus on your next questions instead of on troubleshooting. The possibilities are endless and the future begins now. Learn more at www.stemcell.com slash cerebral organoids. All right, guys, it's our special privilege today to have on the show Dr. Jurgen Noblik, who's at the Institute of Molecular Biotechnology, IMBA, of the Austrian Academy of Sciences in Vienna, where he is scientific director. Dr. Noblik is known for the development of an organoid model of early human brain development, together with Dr. Madeline Lancaster, who's a friend of the show. The Noblik Lab is currently using iPSCs and cerebral organoids to investigate interbrain region interactions, neuronal, neurodevelopmental disorders, and neuronal connections and function. Dr. Noblik, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. Well, thanks for having me. Dr. Noblik, we'll start off the interview with a quote that's at the very top of your lab web website. So it's from Richard Feynman. And the quote is, what I cannot create, I do not understand. And I suppose it serves as an inspiration for your lab's work, right, which focuses on the recreating and modeling of human brain development and disease in a dish. Your lab helped actually kickstart the modern organoid revolution through the development of the first true human cerebral organoids derived from iPSCs, work that was pioneered by none other than Madeline Lancaster, as Dalen said, who's a, who's a, um, a friend of the show. She was uh, your former postdoc. And the field has really exploded since that paper was published in Nature back in, what, 2013? Um, and so the success in the adoption of these organoids as a model system has been really beyond our wildest imaginations. Or is this something that you actually saw coming? And as one of the founders of this organoid field and the brain organoid field, tell us what's next for this really iconic technology. So, I mean, I, I wish I would be able to say I saw it coming, but I didn't. Uh, I think uh, it was very unexpected. I mean, maybe a few words about myself. I'm a Drosophila geneticist by background. So I'm very interested in generating mutants and then uh, addressing uh, their phenotypes uh, and then learning something about development, about disease, about uh, physiology, and so on. And uh, when... Um, 
and we, we started taking this approach in the fruit fly Drosophila, where uh, we did a saturation mutagenesis using uh, RNAi together with uh, Barry Dixon. And then <clears throat> uh, when Madeleine came into the lab, she wanted to actually take that approach into vertebrates. And uh, one biological problem that we were interested in is always the, the balance between proliferation and differentiation in the nervous system. So that's what you wanted to screen for. We, you know, obtained an RNAi library and she wanted to take mouse uh, stem cells and culture them and grow them into rosettes. And what we found was that uh, the cultures actually did not quite follow what uh, you actually see in the mouse. It was a particular type of cells, intermediate progenitors that were missing in those um, cultures, and uh, that really brought Madeleine to uh, trying to get these cultures into the third dimension, into uh, 3D. And then at some point, um, uh, we were discussing the fact that there are actually human-specific aspects of brain development. There were some very interesting uh, papers coming out at that time by Arnold Kriegstein and Wieland Huttner, who showed that the human brain is quite in its development, it's quite fundamentally different from the mouse brain. Um, and those two things together made Madeleine uh, think that it might be a good idea to actually uh, use uh, human stem cells for it and then grow them uh, in uh, 3D. Uh, and then very soon we realized that the screen is no longer the first goal, uh, but that generating the system by itself would actually be totally um, exciting. And I still remember this one group meeting where Madeleine then showed this picture of this uh, three-dimensional jelly-like structure that had this eye growing out on one side. And I think that picture really uh, also convinced a lot of people of the power of uh, this um, in vitro system. Uh, and so this was really the, the what led us to actually develop those organoids. I love that appraisal because it's just so frank and honest. It's it's like science. Most of the time you set out to do one thing and then, you know, you're kind of waylaid by the tool you're using, right? And you say, hey, wow, this tool is actually maybe cooler than the initial goal. Um, but, you know, talking to, to Madeline and, and reading interviews with you, one thing that really comes across uh, is how supportive you've been um, as a mentor, uh, how prominently you credit Madeline as the engine that, that drove the work and the story you just told us, you know, her name came up five or six times. Um, you know, some PIs might want to claim more credit for themselves. I don't know who, not you though. Is it one of the more inscrutable, uh, facets of the mentor mentee relationship for you as well? I've always found it to be such a mystery, the synergy that develops uh, between a mentor and a mentee in the best of cases. Um, so what's your strategy there? I mean, do, do you have a specific uh, a strategy for cultivating talent amongst trainees? And now um, that you've been you know, elevated in your career and gotten to this point, uh, pretty recently appointed a scientific director of the Institute of Molecular Biotechnology, how do you now cultivate talent and lead a, a group of PIs and group leaders? So, of course, the mentoring strategy that you take within a lab changes over time. Uh, in the very beginning, when I started my lab, 
um, I had a very central question, which was asymmetric cell division. And the whole lab was grouped around that. And that generates a certain coherence within the lab. Everyone has uh, uh, the same goal, the same kind of question, and that makes people work together. But as you become more senior, you realize more and more that actually what remains of you uh, to some degree, it's the scientific uh, findings, but there's always later someone who can do it better. Uh, but what really remains is the people that you have um, educated. Um, and so the way I run my lab is through the principle of facilitated self-organization. I actually try to get the people together in a way so that they fit with each other uh, and um, so that they 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 you know, develop their curiosity, their independence. Um, and although, you know, it was Marlene who did it, but I do take the credit for generating an environment in which this uh, could happen, right? Um, and also uh, for generating an environment where then you don't just grow the first organoid and then send it uh, for publication to nature, but then go this very next step of actually modeling um a disease, uh, which I actually think is the one thing that we did the very first, uh, model a disease in three-dimensional brain organoid um, culture. Um, and I think that is really what kick-started the whole um, field. Now, so now for an institute, of course, that's, a, that's at a different uh, dimension. I think what we are trying to do here at IMBA is um, we're trying to recruit group leaders right after their Postdoc, so there's a very high turnover in our institute, uh, and then we give them all the possibilities um, that that we can give them. So we have a very gigantic service infrastructure. Uh, we have uh, facilities for almost everything, and everyone gets free access to that. And what that does is it not only allows the group leader to kickstart their career without first thinking for two years on how to get their careers financed, but it also allows the PhDs and postdocs to actually use those facilities without always counting the dollars uh, and having long discussions about budget with their group leaders. And that gives them a degree of independence that is um, quite unparalleled. I think one of the role model or some of the role models for this type of approach are the the LMB in Cambridge or the or the EMBL in um, Heidelberg, which function under very similar principles. And in IMBA, we work very closely together with the sister institute, the IMP. Um, and IMBA has actually uh, started as a as a as a sister institute of the um, IMP, and we still have very very close um, interactions on that level. So. It's this empowerment uh, that I believe in generating an environment where that is creative, cooperative, uh, and lets people develop their strengths. Wow. Imba sounds kind of like a scientific paradise, especially for young trainees and new PIs. It's nice to be able to really focus on the work without having to worry too much about the the financial implications. But, you know, there's still 
certainly an element of that no matter where you go. But as you mentioned, you're first and foremost a Drosophila geneticist. That's sort of how you got into the field. And originally you were a biochemist. And although everybody's really obsessed with organoids these days, and understandably so, in the pre-organoid days, you focused on Drosophila as your workhorse model system. And it's something that you're still using to study brain development. And these days, unfortunately, the fruit fly doesn't seem to garner as much attention as it used to, in part because everybody seems to be so focused on these sexy new technologies like organoids, iPSCs, CRISPR, right? But it's still such a powerful model system for genetic manipulation. And some people might even say it's the best in view of model system for studying genetics because of the speed of the development of the Drosophila, how quickly and easily you can cross the flies. So it's really unfortunate that there is this de decline of the fruit flies model system. And what's your take on that? And how does your lab always aim to integrate the fruit fly and really whatever you're doing, even with the organoids these days? So, I mean, first of all, I think, uh, you know, we use model systems um, as they come and go to answer the biological questions that we need to answer. And I think that's just a development in science. We're in the post-genomics era. So, so taking a gene and studying its function, I mean, most of what was done when I was a graduate student and also to some degree as a postdoc was to find an interesting gene and then address its function. Uh, and I think Drosophila is absolutely fantastic for that. Uh, but I think now that we know all the genes, I think we're beyond that. Uh, I still feel Drosophila is an absolutely fantastic model system. Uh, and um, we still had a... a earlier this year, uh, or earlier last year, uh, we, we still had a big paper in, in, in Drosophila about uh, tumor development and metabolic function. And I'm, and I'm just, every time, you know, the, the, the level of precision with which you can do experiments in Drosophila is just absolutely amazing. And it's not just the techniques. I think, you know, the genetics of organoids and uh, of, of mouse is, is, is very close to what you can achieve in Drosophila. It has developed really very far. Um, but there's a different intrinsic design logic. It's just when you, when you work with Drosophila and then uh, you do different experiments to address a similar question, what you get always in the end makes sense. You always get a simple answer. And then there's always this like figure seven control experiment that you're doing to finally prove it. And interesting, it always comes out right. It's not always the case in the in, in vertebrates. And I think it just has to deal with the, the fact that 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 mammalians uh, mammals are just more evolved and and you're using the same machineries in many many more different ways so whether you study I mean a good example is this gene that I was uh, working with as a postdoc num which is the key regulator of asymmetric cell division and Drosophila what it does is asymmetric cell division and that's it and it does that in in many many different organs in the muscles in uh, the gut in uh, the nervous system and the peripheral nervous system, right? In mammals, uh, we still don't precisely know what it does. It does something with epithelial polarity. It probably does asymmetric cell division. It has a role in ecology. It has a role in exome guidance. And in different organs, you get very, very different answers. And so this makes the whole work a lot more um, complicated. Nevertheless, I mean, I think we are moving. Biology is, is is moving. It's moving from, I mean, at some point, you know, some of the key discoveries were done in the bacteriophage lambda. Uh, 
Hmm. Uh, but at some point, you just got to move on. You, you, you have answered the key questions. And um, there are a lot of key questions that one can still answer in Drosophila, but some of them are actually done. Uh, and so that's why the field is moving on. And I, I, I mean, it's not a weakness of Drosophila. It's just that the world is changing. We are generally, I think, in biology, we are moving towards a more applied science. And then, of course, it gets very difficult uh, in Drosophila. It gets a bit difficult to actually extract disease-relevant um, information. To some degree, you can do it. But it's it's uh, it's mostly the, the 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 genetics, and at some point, every organ has been screened through, uh, and uh, then it's probably time to move on. Still, the contributions that Drosophila makes to neuroscience are actually um, absolutely fantastic. So I don't think uh, uh, Drosophila as an organism is dead. But for the particular topic that we are interested in, uh, I think it's time to move on, and that made us decide. Um, about uh, 15 years ago to actually move to, to vertebrates. Um, and then we started with the mouse and now with um, organoids. And what I find really cool now about the new uh, uh, work is that I work very close with um, hospitals, with uh, patients, and that's an additional really, really strong motivation uh, to really actually, I mean, in, in, in one of our recent works, we're working on a particular type of epilepsy, and we're studying the mechanism with an approach that is actually coming from Drosophila genetics, namely loss of function genetics. And uh, in the end, we end up with a clear proposal for an approved drug that could be used to treat this type of epilepsy. And that gives you a kind of satisfaction that uh, you don't have with uh, fruit flies. And uh, for me, that's uh, been very rewarding. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's funny. Everyone always says, well, we're not trying to cure cancer in a mouse. We're not trying to cure epilepsy in a fly. But like, that's dumb because you can use those tools to cure epilepsy, cancer in people. You talk about moving on. Um, you know, you were rooted in basic mechanisms of neurodevelopment, but you really, as you just alluded to, expanded the scope of your research in the last decade or two to include um, neuropsychiatric disorder, cancer, a lot of unmet needs uh, that you didn't probably begin your career thinking you might address. Um, and as you just said, you had this big paper in, in the fall focusing on tumors in Drosophila brain, which is a total twist to me. I mean, I never even considered uh, looking at cancer in an invertebrate, but there it is. Um, how do you envision moving on, you know, with organoids now? How are you going to use uh, mammalian organoids uh, to tackle these unmet needs, cancer, neuropsychiatric disease. Can you give us a, a kind of a, a glimpse into your strategy there? Absolutely. Uh, but just one word about Drosophila and uh, cancer. The very, very first conference that I've ever attended in my life was uh, tumorigenesis in Drosophila. And the first tumor suppressor genes, the, the, just the, the basic idea that there are mutations that cause uh, the formation of a tumor that comes from Drosophila, hmm. and that, that the very first tumor suppressor gene it was cloned. It's called lethal giant larvae, and it was cloned uh, a couple of months before 
PRB and the P53. Mm-hmm. So the whole concept, and there was there was a, a time, a particular work from uh, Bernard Mechler and uh, Elisabeth Gatev, where people did mutagenesis in Drosophila trying to identify the the, the, the tumor suppressor uh, genes. So uh, Drosophila does have a tradition in uh, tumor genesis. And there's actually some people that believe that actually many flies in the end die from a tumor genesis because the uh, stem cells in the gut actually go wild and they cause um, tumors. So much about Drosophila and uh, tumors. Uh, one other thing I wanted to mention is that in our lab, we did maintain the spirit of um, Drosophila. So one of the key findings in Drosophila was, uh, or one of the key developments in Drosophila was the identification of loss of function genetics as a tool. It was Eric Wieschaus and Janine Nusslein-Wolhardt who actually developed this. And I happened to uh, do my PhD in a, in a lab that was uh, 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 had group meetings together with Janine Nusslein-Wolhardt. Um, and it's always fascinated me. And I always felt it would be great to apply this approach to mouse or even to um, humans. And so this has been our last uh, paper that came out in in, in um, the fall of uh, 2020, where we developed a technology that's called CRISPR-Licked, uh, which allows us to do loss of function genetics in organoids. So we can take batteries of genes and we can screen through them for their um, phenotype. And so you were asking about the future of um, or, of organoids and of our lab. It is loss of function genetics. What my mission is, and I think what also maybe distinguishes us a little bit from other organoid uh, labs, is we would like, in the end, to apply the precision that we have been enjoying in Drosophila for the longest time to a human model system. And we're using organoids as a tool. And to give you two examples for that, the first one is CRISPR-Licht, which I was just telling you about, a technology where we can put batteries of mutations in organoids. We do that with a guide RNA library, and then we study those ones that are actually depleted in the organoids, assuming that they have been essential for the cells to proliferate. Um, and we're now applying the same technology to other um, diseases, uh, expanding it with, with in, a, in a cell type specific manner. And a second one is uh, an example where we have dis- dis- studied a human disorder that's called tuberous sclerosis, which is a type of um, epilepsy. We found the uh, reason for it. And um, uh, the this work actually by analyzing the kind of loss of function phenotype of this gene, we identified a new cell type uh, in the human brain that uh, might actually be very important for tumorigenesis, but might also contribute to some human-specific uh, phenomena during brain development. Mm. And so this, this kind of exemplifies the approach, which is actually borrowed from Drosophila. So in Drosophila, you know, uh, The classical approach in Drosophila is everyone, every student in the lab gets one mutation that comes from a genetic screen that was done in the lab. And then um, you study that mutation. And if you're lucky, it tells you something about uh, how a certain disease functions. Um, And this is exactly what we've done here, right? I mean, if you you think about it, the medical uh, track 
record, the medical records that we have of uh, heritable disorders is the biggest genetic screen that was ever mm. done on this planet. So I feel a little bit like being in Yanni Nisla and Wolhardt's department, the screen was just done, right? And now you have this paradise. You can analyze all the uh, mutants. I have to be a bit careful with the terminology. I have to clearly say that I, I have a lot of respect for uh, these are human individuals. And so one, one, one needs to probably be careful with the terminology, and I'm aware of that. But I just want to say, right, from a perspective of a developmental biology, that biologists, that's what it is. You have all these phenotypes and you have these collections um, of uh, DNA aberrations that are actually responsible for it. And organoids now allow us to actually look into this. Hmm. Uh, and I'm very excited about this particular approach. And I think that's that's the approach that we are actually taking in my lab. Yeah, so even though the models have changed, the real focus, the ultimate focus stays the same in your lab on brain development. And I'm really happy that you brought up CRISPR-Licked, CRISPR right, this new tool that you guys have developed because uh, your lab has actually applied that tool to great extent. And you actually just published a paper in Science that you, I think you were just alluding to at the end of 2020, actually using this CRISPR-Licked in combination with these cerebral organoids to screen for genes that cause microencephaly which is, you know, this disease of, um, you know, smaller brains, right? And you show that these genes, the regulating the ER, the endoplasmic reticulum function and extracellular matrix excretion are really important for the development of the disease. And your screening technology was really instrumental to do this. And although we've had guests who have hated using that term, mini brains, you know, that's not the, the greatest terminology, but unfortunately that's caught on in the general population, you know, for these brain organoids. That's sort of what you're looking at here, right, in the case of this microcephaly. So tell us more about this application of using cerebral organoids to study this particular developmental disorder. So first of all, about the term mini brains, I mean, I think, you know, among scientists, I think it's fine to use uh, that term, but I think it uh, creates incorrect impressions uh, among the lay public because it's just thinking that a brain organoid is a miniaturized version of a human brain is just fundamentally wrong. It's just not. It's absolutely not. It is very different. It just recapitulates aspects of brain development. And one of these aspects that are very well recapitulated is proliferation, the control of uh, progenitor cells, their symmetric division, and then asymmetric division, when they uh, when do they switch to generating neurons? It seems like these are the events that are recapitulated very well, and these are also the events that are very important for microcephaly. Uh, Marlene's original paper used microcephaly as a disorder, and the reason why we picked it is because it's just the most obvious brain disorder at the time. You know, we had that system. And we said, well, you know, I mean, if, if you know, if we want to make a real difference, we need to show that you can recapitulate a certain disorder. So we picked the strongest one where we were quite confident that you would be able to recapitulate it. Right. So now there's many, many different genes that can actually cause microcephaly. And uh, in Madeleine's original paper, it was only one of them. But we now generated a, a methodology that we can use to actually screen through all of the genes that have ever been uh, suspected to cause microcephaly. And this is where this CRISPR-Licht um, technology 
comes from. It allows us to now select those that uh, cause microcephaly in an organoid. Uh, but then we wanted to go one step further because uh, microcephaly is a horrible disorder and we wish we would be able to treat it. But um, unfortunately, even with the best organoid model, um, it is very unlikely that once a brain develops to a size that is too small, you will cure that and enlarge it. But what is very important about microcephaly is, again, from the point of a drosophila geneticist, right? Uh, genes whose loss of function results in a too small brain, per definition, are the genes that are regulating brain size. And I think that's a very interesting aspect because our brain is so much more powerful because it is so much bigger. Uh, and this is actually what was behind this uh, CRISPR-Licht screen. And so among the uh, many genes that we actually um, identified, over 30, um, we then selected those ones that might point to new biological processes that had not been in uh, the limelight before for regulating brain size. So, um, you know, when you, when you talk about brain size defects, um, the most common genes that cause such defects are centrosomal proteins, because then the cell division orientation cannot be maintained, or genes that are involved in DNA damage control, because then the general proliferation is uh, slowed down. But we then took the kind of most obscure gene that also has a very obscure name, IER3IP1. And uh, that was a gene that was involved in regulating the endoplasmic reticulum. And we could then demonstrate that this gene in an organoid really, um, when, it's, when it's lost, the organoids are much smaller. So it's a regulator of brain size. And we can show that also in the organoids, the um, endoplasmic reticulum is defective. And by using proteomics, this is where our facilities uh, come in again, uh, we could show that there's a defect in secretion of extracellular matrix. And we could then demonstrate that this loss of extracellular matrix is actually what's the root cause of microcephaly in this gene. So we've added one particular biological process to the number of processes that are particularly important that the human brain to actually um, enable it to grow such a big size. So that's the rationale behind this experiment. But I should say that actually the focus in the paper is really on method development. It was really, we wanted to, I mean, there's now a lot of these guide RNA dropout screens. And they're all done in 2D. Um, and this methodology, um, I think originally uh, pioneered by Fan Zhang, uh, has really been very widely used to screen for genes that are essential for proliferation in particular cell types. But all of these screens are done in two dimensions. And uh, we realized early on that there's a huge difference between 2D and 3D, because what you do in those screens is simply you start with a library, so uh, you know, uh, of, of of guide RNAs, where every guide RNA is equally represented, and then you're screening for those that are lost, and then you know those ones were targeting genes that are essential. Now, a prerequisite for this 
is that if the guide RNAs are neutral, they're equally represented in the end. So what you depend on is that every cell that you use to start your culture generates about the same number of daughter cells. And in 2D, that's more or less the case. But in 3D, that's absolutely, absolutely not the case. The number of daughter cells generated varies over six orders of magnitude. So some cells generate 10, others generate 10 million. Um, and that kills any uh, dropout screen. And so what we decided to do was to barcode every single individual cell that we use to start our culture. So we that's an idea that originally came from uh, Uli Elling at our institute. And we start every cell with a barcode. We then grow the organoid and then introduce again a barcode into every cell. And so now you have like the barcode of the starting cell and the barcode of the cell in the end. And by simply counting the, 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 the barcodes generated in the organoid per starting lineage barcode, you know the entire lineage of the organoid. And that converts the problem um, of screening from an analog into a digital problem. And that makes it much easier to identify. And we actually have some experiments in the paper showing that the exact same data if we would not have this lineage analysis, you would not be able to pick up any of the hits that we found in the um, in the paper. And so this is the method that we've been developing. Basically allows us to do, uh, in a modest scale, Drosophila genetics uh, in a human brain. Yes. I mean, aside from the, the technical tour de force and the insight there, uh, a nice little kernel that I like is the acronym LICT because it's an interesting way of, of, of making an acronym in the, in the language of science is, uh, you know, English. So you make an acronym with English letters, but it, it spells out Licht, which means light in German. Am I wrong? It's absolutely correct. We actually had long uh, debates. I mean, the, all of this goes back also to Drosophila genetics, where it used to be a, a kind of a running gag that uh, uh, new genes in the lab of Janine Stein Volhardt were named after, uh, were given names that uh, you could not pronounce in the English language, like <laughs> Spätzle and all that stuff, right? And that caused a lot of, uh, that, 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 that was very funny uh, very often. So we had a debate about uh, whether this is the right name or not, but... Uh, but I actually feel it's it's very good because it really shines light on uh, the organizer. Oh yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, you couldn't make it up. It's it's, it's what it is. It's a really good descriptor. Um, one idea that has been gaining a lot of momentum. I mean, this isn't your your focus, I know. So forgive me, but there's this idea out there we talk about a lot is the chimerism. You know, mixing pluripotent cells with early stage embryos. Even now, I think the newfangled methods are you combining it with like reduced developmental capacity. You know, like these IGFR mutants that there's a the selective advantage of the donor cells to make these interspecies chimeras in some cases with like whole organs that are um, made of the donor cell type. Now, of course, putting aside the ethical uh, barriers, I think you alluded to that peripherally. I don't want to talk about the ethics of uh, animal models with human neural tissue, but uh, I just want to ask you as the expert here, and you've thought of everything, what is or what are the rationales? for generating animal models 
uh, with human neural tissue? There's some obvious ones, but what are some maybe uh, less obvious ones? And, and, and really, I would say, what, what are the, the limitations of those models? Uh, you know, if, if you were to have an interspecies chimera with neural tissue, what would be the big upside and what's, what are the limits? So, I mean, it's funny because I'm on a a committee from the International Society for Stem Cell Research that is just revising their um, guidelines, which um, uh, are accepted by by a large fraction of all the journals as guidelines for authors uh, in the end. Um, And, uh, of course, um, Chimera and to some degree also Organoids are a big topic there. Um, And uh, it's, you mentioned it, Chimera of the nervous system are uh, they're ethically problematic, but they're also uh, very important. Uh, I mean, if you look at organoids, we can get to some point, but there is a point where we can't go any further. Uh, I think we can get um, vascularization uh, to some degree. We can mix it with endothelial cells, but really growing a connected network of interconnected uh, vascular tubes in an organoid that is perfused, I think, is close to impossible. And even if it were possible one day, it would always be much more difficult than actually taking that organoid and implanting it into a mouse. Uh, So we do need uh, chimera research. Uh, We need it because we can culture human tissues to quite some degree. And I think uh, it's going to improve, and it is improving, but it will never become perfect. The entire complement of the immune system, uh, plus blood vessels, plus stromal cells, I think this is impossible, right? So so I think uh, transplantation of stem cells into the mouse, it just gives you an additional degree of freedom, an additional research branch that we absolutely need. It may for not be the solution for all questions, but I think in the brain, it is certainly going to be very, very um, important. Now, in terms of the ethical uh, limitations, um, uh, I actually do not, uh, I mean, I understand that a lot of people are concerned with those experiments. I, uh, you know, if you just look at the size of a mouse brain and just do a little, thought experiment, uh, if you would take that piece of tissue uh, and it is being done in epileptic surgery and it would take such a size piece of tissue from a human brain and you would dissect it, uh, nobody remotely would think, oh my goodness, uh, we have to keep that brain tissue alive because it could be an independent human being. It just is not, right? So the sheer size of the mouse brain does not uh, allow the development of anything that is really um, ethically problematic. From the perspective of a scientist, I, at the same time, I'm a true believer in taking public concerns very, very serious, because if we ignore them, I think um, this will lead uh, 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 into disaster, because after all, it's the public that is actually financing our, our work. So, so I do think we need to take the concerns serious, but I'm not truly ethically concerned. Uh, The limitation would be reached when we take human cells and transplant them into a primate. Um, I think there really, really every experiment needs to be watched. And I think the kind of discussion that we had um, in this board of the ISSCR, uh, I I think 
you know, then then you just need to have an oversight process. I think you need to watch those experiments. You need to see what happens and you need to have like your scientific program, but you need in parallel, you need to have an ethical program that kind of makes assumptions, you know, if what we are doing would be ethically problematic, could we measure that? What are the, let's say, if the monkey becomes, uh, first of all, I mean, you need to have a very, very strong justification for an experiment like this. I think you can only justify an experiment like this with, 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 a, with a fairly immediate medical uh, need. And then you need to watch the experiment. And if the monkey starts doing certain things that it normally would not do, maybe then it's time to stop the experiment. Um, and I think um, we need to uh, monitor experiments like this. Um, but uh, with uh, rodents or so, I don't have much of a problem with that. Yeah, it's, we talk about this a lot on the show, human-animal chimerism, and I think it's one of the most exciting things about stem cell biology, in part because you can see the tremendous application for these things, not only for studying disease processes in vitro and in vivo, but also potentially for solving some of the issues with organ transplantation down the road, too. So from Drosophila to brain organoids, you and your lab have been instrumental in helping us figure out all sorts of things about how the brain develops and all the diseases associated with brain development. So thank you, Dr. Noblick, for joining us here on the show to give us some insight into uh, how your lab functions and how you've been able to span across, you know, across the, the the years, different model organisms and integrate those really effectively into the research that you do. And really, before we let you go, we'd like to ask a couple of science peripheral questions just to help our listeners get to know you a little bit better. So starting off, what was your greatest or perhaps a memorable science revelation or surprise? We like to call it an aha moment here on the show. And what was the, the greatest disappointment that was perhaps a result that you were not exactly expecting? to get? So both of these happened during my um, graduate student work. I mean, I think uh, most of these aha moments you have in the early stage of your um, career. Um, and, and the biggest excitement was I was working with Drosophila and I knew the pattern of cell division extremely well. I knew exactly, I've been staring at thousands and thousands of embryos under the microscope and I could dream about the pattern of cell division. And then I worked on this one gene, which is called cyclin E, and we overexpressed it. And by simply heating up the fly and overexpressing cyclin E, I could synchronously change that pattern and drive every cell in a whole Drosophila embryo through one more round of cell division. I completely freaked out. I mean, I went out with friends and got completely drunk <laughs> because it was so absolutely amazing. Me being able to synthesize a, big piece, a small piece of DNA, putting it into a fly, and then change the one thing that I had always taken for granted, and that really strongly motivated me. At the same time, or a bit earlier actually, uh, my PhD project was to work on the function of a, a, a cycline called cycline B, the major mitotic cycline, um, and uh, there was no mutation in cycline B, so we wanted to make one, and, uh, and in those days there was no CRISPR-Cas and no RNAi, so we had to do an X-ray mutagenesis, and you do that by taking a fly that has red eyes and then you shine x-rays on it and then you look for flies that are white-eyed. Mm. And I screened through 40,000 flies. And there was not a single one. I mean, after a lot of analysis, there was none in there. My supervisor, 
said, well, got to do it again. So I did the whole thing a second time. Again, no result. And then I did it a third time. And then I remember the moment where we took those flies and uh, we uh, brought them to the microscope and we stained them with an antibody against cyclin B. And I went there and I, there was a quarter of the embryos had no cyclin B. And I was like, I almost hugged my supervisor and said, this is absolutely fantastic. And then he looked at it and uh, he said, well, it's great that you've done that, but I don't know why you're so excited about it because it doesn't have any fucking phenotype. <laughs> <laughs> he, he actually, he actually is he, he's very good because he immediately or very quickly realized that this has to do with a redundancy uh, with another cycling, which is cycling A. We then made the double mutant. And that was my very first ever publication. So it was pretty good. We rescued it. Persistence really pays. That's amazing. Um, I was going to say, we got to hear more of these stories, you know, all the work that amounts to a negative result and not a publication, but you did rescue it and you got the publication, but the, the, <laughs> the story is brilliant. Nonetheless, I, I wouldn't call that a failure, but pretty close for you. I guess you count it amongst your, your not negative results. Um, but still pretty impressive. Uh, moving on, we got a, a few fill in the blanks for you. Uh, first, the biggest thing in the stem cell field right now is? Well, organoids. <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course. Of course. Yes, of course. Of course. That's a loaded question. If you had said something else, we would have stopped the interview. Next, I would never have got to this point in my career without? Without my wife. Oh, that's lovely. That's uh, lovely. Family. I mean, I think this is... Yeah. yeah. No need to elaborate. I know how it is. Um Sec, uh, third, when it comes to blank, I am pretty much useless. Finances. I can't really, <laughs> I cannot deal with it. It's just no way. I mean, I, I just, uh, I've, I've, my first ever uh, investment into the stock market, I lost everything. I mean, I think in the end I was left with 10 euro. Uh, I don't want to tell you how much I started with. But, so I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm very similar, and that's why my my answer to number two is also my wife, because I count on her for the finances. There you go. Yeah. Uh, finally, if the lab catches fire and I have a chance to want, grab one thing on my way out, it is? Well, I wish I would have something more imaginative to say, but in reality, it would be my laptop, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just but the I reflex. Do have, I do have a statue. I do have a statue in my office, which uh, comes from an... Uh, an uh, 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 artist from uh, Africa that 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 I got to know at some point. Uh, that is another thing that I, and there's two paintings in my office that my son drew um, when he was I don't know I think nine or ten years old. Uh, those are the things that I would carry. I think they would all fit laptop <laughs> and statue. The statue is like only very small and the pictures and then I would leave. The question was grab one thing, Dr. Noblik, but we're going to let you off the hook because you look like you're, you know, you got a lot of important things in that office. And, and who am I to say no to a man who wants to bring his son's masterwork out of the fire with him? Jürgen, thank you so much for this chat. This was a lot of fun. And uh, it's just so exciting to follow your career because uh, as we've talked about here, you really 
you really run the gamut and you're always looking to the next thing. So we'll have you on again in the near future and we'll talk about that next thing. But for now, thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me and uh, for asking all these wonderful questions. All right, that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. We always have a great episode from the IMBA. You should look into the archives. We had Joe Penninger on. His first time on the show was when he was still director of the IMBA, and that was a riot. Check it out. We've got another episode coming up in a couple weeks. Listen up for that one, guys. Thanks for listening this time. 